If you would, turn in your Bible to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And this morning we'll be looking particularly at verses 9 through 13. John begins, as we've noted over the past three weeks, with a theological punch. He begins with a strong assertion, an astounding assertion, an assertion that if we understand it rightly, beloved, will cause us to magnify the living God in our worship. I don't think that if we understand these words rightly that we can ever get over them. Uh, These aren't just a soft peddling of leading into a bunch of facts that we already know. My fear is that that's the way that we read John chapter 1. That we've become so accustomed to the Gospel that we read these first 18 verses in such a way as we're kind of like, yeah, 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 I know that. And if we ever come to the Gospel with an attitude of, yeah, 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 I know that, then we have not applied it to our hearts rightly. Uh, we should never be able to come to these realities and just snooze through them. You see, John here begins before the beginning. He speaks of the Word who was in the beginning. He says in verses 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he goes on in verse 3 to point out, that He was the Word through which all things were made. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He gives us the reality of Christ creating everything ex nihilo, both in the positive and in the negative. And then in verse 4, in Him is life. And the life was the light of men. And verse 5 tells us this glorious truth that the darkness has not overcome the light. Beloved, this morning, regardless of what happens in the electorate, what, regardless of what happens in our health, regardless of what happens to our loved ones, what we know based off of verse 5 is that Christ will rule and reign forever. And that should cause us much joy. What we have here in these first five verses is the summation of God as both the Creator and as our Redeemer. Both of those truths are wrapped up in these first five verses. John just comes and wallops us right between the eyes with the reality that there is a Creator And there is a Redeemer, and that person is the triune God, and we have seen the Son. Then he goes on to speak of John the Baptist, who was the witness of this light, who was the witness of Christ in verses 7 and 8. God has chosen in this life to use means as a witness to His glory, and that's what He did with John. He uses John as a means to point to Jesus. And if, you, if, if, that, if that particular detail, if verses 1 through 5 make you excited, but then you get to verses 6 through 8, and you go, yeah, 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 John, that's just a parenthetical, I think John would disagree with you. And I know that John would disagree with you because if you turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 41 and 42, you'll find this narrative about John and his response to who the person and the work of Christ was prior to him even entering the world. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. That is John. The child was even in utero declaring that Christ is full of glory, that He is our Creator and our Redeemer. Some people marvel at the fact that Charles Spurgeon started his ministry in an earthly sense preaching at the age of 16, which is a pretty incredible reality. But here we have John, and he started his ministry before his his delivery. It's pretty amazing. God uses witnesses. Why? So that we might believe. 
Friends, I hope that that truth doesn't escape us and that we understand that if we are in Christ, believing, having received Him by grace, that God intends to use us as witnesses as well. It's not a negotiable for the Christian. The call on our life is that everything that we do in every area of our life would point to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. John is writing for the very purpose that we might believe this morning. He's being a witness in His own right. So with that in mind, would you stand and do honor the reading of God's inerrant Word. Starting in verse 1, we will read, as John writes here, under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God, knowing that the world lies in the power of the evil one, and yet we are of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him, he was not the light, but, beca- but came to bear witness about the light. And here, starting in verse 9. Then, uh, excuse me, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. This is the Word of God to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning humbled at the reality that at this moment there are many of us gathered here that do know You. And Father, might we leave today glorying all the more in that reality in light of what Your Word says here in verses 9-14. through Father, would You... If there is one here today that doesn't know you, we pray for that individual. We ask that you would do the work of regeneration in their life, that they would come to a saving knowledge of Christ, that they would both receive and believe upon Him and live a life as a witness to the glory that they have beheld. And Father, this morning we pray that we would see more of the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When we come to the Gospel of John, if I just say John's Gospel and then ask you what is the first verse that comes to mind, I would say probably 90% of us are going to say John 3.16. Now we have a tendency to think about uh, certain texts as associated to the work The danger is that we often think about those particular texts that have been implanted into our mind through repetition outside of their context. I think it's peculiar that some verses are known and others are kept more in obscurity of the mind of the church. Uh, I think it's peculiar that we rush to John 3.16 and my hope is that by the time that, that we're done with this study, that John 14, 1.14 14 
comes nearer to our hearts, that, that we glory in that particular verse, which really punctuates everything we're going to deal with today. And we'll, we'll, we'll deal with John 14 more next week. You see, we think and we rush for John 3.16, I think partially because it's been contorted to try to make the case that Jesus is going to save everyone. Uh, David, in our Sunday school class this morning, uh, pointed out that often the gospel is truncated in a way uh, that it's explained that, well, well, you're a sinner, but God loves you. And that's the fullness of the gospel. But that's not the fullness of the gospel. There's more to the gospel than just that reality. John 3.16 sometimes is used to say something other than what it really says. And that's the real problem. Oh, what we need to see is that John 3.16, speaking of being born again, is really not the first place that, that John deals with the reality of being born again. In fact, everything that we find clarified in chapter 3 really finds its beginning here in the verses that we have this morning. Again, we, we need to pause and think about where we've been to this point in this magnificent uh, introduction that John gives us. We've seen in verses 6-8 through eight, the joy of the witness of John pointing to our need for repentance and for the reality of the coming of Christ. We see in verse 5 the, the joyful reality that Christ wins, that the darkness has not overcome the light. In verse 4, that in Christ is light and life. That it's only when we find ourselves in Christ that we could ever hope to have eternal life. We, we don't have life in and of ourselves. We don't have life in our works. We don't have life in our intelligence. We don't have eternal life in anything that is rooted in any respect in us. In Christ is light and life. In verse 3, we see the reality that Christ is the one who created all things. And, and in verses 1 and 2, that He did all of this prior to the beginning of the creation of the world. You see, I think part of what we need to get our minds wrapped around is that every theological, mythological assertion of past ancient uh, civilization emphasized the transcendence of God in creation or in the world. That is, they, they, they emphasized the, the removal of God above the world and apart from the world in some sense. But the Christian understanding is is much different than the pagan mythological understanding of God's removed from the world. And, and, and in fact, if you think about, if you think about the reality that most, most pagan cultures would teach, a, a, a theological, mythological understanding of many gods that were transcendent, removed from the affairs of the world, it makes what they do with their gods all the more absurd. Because we know what they do with their gods. They, they engrave them into the creation. They fashion those idols into metal and stone and wood. Uh, Psalm 115 verses 4 through 8 uh, point to Isaiah chapter 44 kind of mocking the reality of these gods that have been created by man. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What we are taught conversely in John chapter 1 is that the one who created the world is not of the world that he created John is the creator of all things or God, Jesus is the creator of all things but he is not part of what he created in the beginning 
He is not like us. He is spirit. He is other than he, he is created. And so there's some similarity to those pagan cultures, but it's altogether different. He is the one who has created all things. John chapter 4, we will find the reality that because He is Spirit, and we've dealt with this in weeks past, that we must also worship in spirit and in truth. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, you see what we have in John is this chronological pr- pr- succession of events that should shake us to the core and cause us to have all for who God is. The, the, the reality is that Jesus, the pre-incarnate, second member of the Trinity, created all that is. He is the Word through whom everything that was made has been made. And there's nothing that's been made that wasn't made through Him. And yet, here in verse 9, we find this miraculous truth. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John here is, he's past the nativity. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they, they have some semblance of the, 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 the nativity narrative. But here John is past all of that. Uh, ultimately, John here is focused on the eternal reality of Christ punctuated by the fact that God, the, the pre-existent person of Christ has now be taken on flesh and is part of His creation. He is clothed in flesh. Jesus, uh, John here is, is, is focused not on the details of the coming of Christ as other Gospels do, and we're thankful for that under the inspiration of the Spirit. But John here focuses on the reality of Christ Himself, of who Christ is. His deity and His humanity. Jesus, John tells us, is the one who was before all things. Nothing was created without Him. And in Him is light and life. And now He has come into the world. This is, verse 9 is definitely incarnation type language that, that Jesus was born in the flesh. C.S. Lewis is, is, is quoted often as saying, if the thing happened, that is the incarnation, if it happened, it is the most central event in the history of the earth. And John would stand up and say, buddy, there's no if about it. Uh, this happened. Uh, this is this Christ is the pre-existent Creator and Messiah of the entire cosmos. There is no other life except for what can be found in Christ. He, he leads in with the reality that yes, He was transcendent, and yet now He's also imminent. He draws near to those who belong to Him. He was coming into the world. And then John moves on and he drops another bomb. John is not worried about your senses this morning. John is not trying to be subtle. John is trying to rush to the point. And here is the bomb in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and here it is. Yet the world did not know him. That's a That's a a jarring statement. Everything was made by Him. There is nothing that was made that did not come through Him. And it was all made, we learned several weeks ago, to be the theater of redemption. The reason that all of the cosmos came into being was not nebulous. It wasn't so that Adam and Eve might prove that they on their own could withstand the temptation of Satan and, and overcome Satan in their own strength. That was not the reason that God created. God did not create. God wasn't playing craps. He wasn't rolling the dice. He wasn't thinking, well, I'm going to fling the world into existence 
And we'll see what Adam and Eve do. He knew what Adam and Eve were going to do. Everything that was made was made as, they, as, as the theater of our redemption to display not only the creative strength of God, but the redeeming work of God. That is the reason that all things exist to this day. We have to really then go on to stretch our thinking here as John has is, John is warp speed moved past the manger, but we can't get past the reality of the incarnation in Christ, can we? And we have to reckon with the reality that that child, that babe that was laying there in the manger, virgin born, who is not in Adam, who is the second and greater Adam, who ultimately is sinless, laying in that manger, that infant is holding the entire cosmos together. And that boggles our minds, doesn't it? I mean, here is the one who John has built us up to this point. He was pre-existent. And not only was he pre-existent, but he created everything. And not only that, but in him is light and life. And not only that, but he tells us that the darkness has not overcome the light that was in Christ. And so our expectation would be this. So that the Savior of the world, the Messiah that has been promised, he's, he's come into the world, he's there in the manger, and he's holding the entire cosmos together. Surely when He comes, we're all going to know Him. That's not what He says at all. He teaches us a, a completely contrary doctrine to what we would think in our flesh. I mean, wait. He created everything to display His glory and to display His work of redemption. And yet He came in a way that people didn't know Him? I mean, talk about a... What we have to see in light of this one verse is a universal reality. There will be those who receive Him. There will be those who according to verse 12, will believe in His name. But here is the reality of verse 12. That verse 12 is the exception, not the rule. The rule is that the world does not know Him. We see in this passage that to be a believer in this life means that you are the great exception, not the rule of what is currently happening in creation. Again, the rule is found in verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. John does not begin with telling us, and Jesus came into the world and there were some that believed. He doesn't, he doesn't speak that way. He doesn't begin with the positive affirmation. He begins with the context of the norm, the rule of what fallen humanity is. That they do not know Him. If you want to know this morning why our economy rises and falls, why wars are always just in the, in, in, in the recesses of, of diplomatic life, uh, why it is why it is that we have school boards that want to argue that we should put pornography in elementary schools and rejoice in it. If you want to know why that's a reality, I mean, talk about it, 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 look, look. I, every culture has always had absurdities. But I am convinced that those who live in our day and age are in some sort of unknown competition to see who can be the most idiotic in what they put forward in a public platform. And then you have people freaking out because, well, this is censorship. Hey, dang right this is censorship. They're fifth graders. It's not censorship if you as an adult can still get your hands on it. It's wisdom not to put garbage in front of children. This is totally off topic. 
If you want to know why man is depraved, it's because he does not know God. That is the current pressing problem. And once you get to that conclusion, once you come to verse 10 and you acknowledge what the Word of God is saying, that the Savior came into the world and the world didn't know Him, and today that's still a reality, then you're in a theological, well, you're in a theological vein that will lead you somewhere. But it gets worse. Uh, Verse 10 wasn't the bomb that just... Then John comes back with another one. Verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now there are two realities here, and a lot of theological debate that I'm not going to get into, but the two realities that I see in verse 11 is that this is really speaking of two groups of people. It's true of all of humanity. There was nothing that was made that wasn't made through Christ. If you are a made person, if you were created, which we all are, then you are part of this reality. But more narrowly, this is also true of Christ's ethnic people, the Jewish nation. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Now think about that reality. These are the people who had been given the prophets. These are the people who had been given the oracular Word of God. These are the people who the Word of God is pointing forward to Jesus. And they don't know Him? It gets worse than that as we go on into John. We know the rest of the story. Not only don't they know Him, they, they crucify Him. Here is the one who created all things as the theater to His redemptive works. He came into the world. And we would expect that as He came, He would come in such a glorious fashion that He would come in a way that no one could get around knowing Him. That He would come and that He would would have the entire nations, the entire world, fall down at His feet and worship Him in spirit and in truth because in that manger, that's what He deserved. That would have been the right response. Every human being should have seen Jesus and they should have worshipped Him for who He was, but they didn't. And the question is, why? Why has humanity not worshipped in spirit and in truth? You remember Isaiah when he is struck before the Lord and he sees the holiness of God and he cries out, woe is me for I am undone. I think he typifies the reason why the world can't even see Jesus. And then moving on from that experience in Isaiah verses 9 through 9 and 10, we hear language that's familiar about the idolatrous hearts of people in Isaiah 44, in Psalm 115, and really throughout the Bible. As, as Isaiah records, and he, he said, Go and say this to this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. The reason why people did not know who Jesus was, was not because their optic nerves could not see Him physically. It's not because He didn't make Himself clear, uh, manifest in the text. It's not because the prophets, prophets did not make plain who He was. It's because every human being east of Eden is an idolater. Because we don't worship the Creator, we worship the creation. That's every person in this room. And we still wrestle with that in the flesh. The Jews, again, had been given the the oracles, the prophets that pointed to Jesus, but they couldn't see. It's part of the joy of, of our eschatology, regardless of the vein as Christians, is that we believe that when Jesus comes back, everyone will see Him for who He is. Everyone will know that He is both Creator and Redeemer. They'll also know Him 
as righteous judge, but not here and not now. So we have, have the good news of verse 9, the true light which, was, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and we also have the bad news of verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, and came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Then we have something I think is very common in John's writing, and we'll see this more and more as we go throughout John's gospel. And it's his use of irony in verse 12. The irony being that mechanism that engrosses us in what we need to see. Uh, irony kind of captures our attention and points us to the surprising reality that we would not have conceived in our own minds. Well, that's ironic. That's different. Look at verse 12 here. The, the world is in a state where it does not know God, and then out of that darkness, John writes of this reality, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the right to become children of God. What, what, what does that mean? He gave some the right to become the children of God. If you are here this morning and you have received Christ and you're believing in Him this morning, you have the right to be a child of God. What is is John conveying there? He's using language that conveys power, authority, the, the succinct right to hold on to an identity or an office. What we find in verse 12 is really language of being born again. It's right here. We don't have to, beloved, we don't have to wait for Nicodemus to show up and hand us a tract and, and tell us John 3.16, as glorious as that verse is, we have the new birth here in verse 12. We have all of redemption in the Son of God right here in chapter 1. And I want you to see something in this verse that has cost so much and it's caused division in the church and yet I believe that it has given and granted so much hope to the church. Here, Here we have the receiving and the believing of some the exceptions, those who are outside of the rule of this world. Now we need, to, we need to settle with something before we move on to what I'm really driving at, and that is that the receiving and the believing are not passive. Some people will come to this text and they'll, they'll preach, I think in a, a hyper-theology, that the receiving and the believing are something that just happens. But here we find that these in the linguistic form are imperatives. That here we are really being called in our agency. We really must believe. We must receive. Receiving is not a passive action. If, if we invited everyone that's in this room over to our house for lunch today, we're not doing that, Sarah would be, What? Because that's not a passive action. That, that, that is something that, that, that there is positive effort in the direction of. And that's the reality here. Uh, believe, so, so receiving is an action. Believe is actually a participle, so it's more like, I think, those who have received and those who are currently believing. But what we have have to ultimately see is that in light of verse 13, there is no one who believes, there is no one who receives unless God first regenerates. What we have in this passage is the classic reality that regeneration precedes faith, that we don't receive, that we don't go on believing without God regenerating. So here's the question. If that's true, and I believe it is true, if regeneration precedes faith, and only by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit can we come to receive Christ and believe and go on believing, then how in the world do we explain the irony of the exceptions in verse 12? But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. 
The world and humanity do not see that Christ is both creator and redeemer as they should. The the world... I'm going to go on a little bit of an excursus here. There is this insane idea. Just pause right there. Just a second. There is this insane idea that is being pushed by, by some that Christianity has lost its footing in the cultural conversations. And so, Brian, what we should do in the public sphere is this. We should stop arguing from the platform of the Word of God and we should back to, backtrack to natural law. That is, God has revealed Himself in nature. We can look just out into the world and even lost men can see that the world works in a certain way. And there was R.C. Sproul that was asked one time, I have a friend who doesn't believe that sin exists. What should I do? And R.C.'s response was, steal his wallet. In some sense, that's arguing from natural uh, law. Uh, you're, you're showing them just the reality that things are morally wrong from, from nature. And there, there's a whole Christian, I, I think, push in some sense, an impulse that, look, we can't get TV time on CNN with the Gospel anymore, so what we need to do is we need to back off and we just need to point to natural law, argue from that position, and then maybe one day we'll get, we'll get to the revealed Word of God again. That's nonsense. That's absolute hogwash to leave the high ground of God's Word to speak to a culture. Because here's the reality. I was talking to my wife about this. Here's the reality about all of this. Do you think that a lost world that does not see God, does not see Jesus as Redeemer, is going to see Him and know Him as Creator? Uh, There are people who want to argue creation so much. If we can just get everyone to see creation, then they'll see Redeemer. The problem is we don't see Him as Creator or Redeemer without grace. We don't. And so to start to build our public platforms around the lesser, the creation, and I'm not saying we shouldn't make creation arguments, but what I am saying is we should never give up the Gospel as the primary reality of what we should be heralding today. Excursus concluded. The question is, how do we explain the irony of the exceptions in verse 12? That the entire world, that all of humanity refused to see and to know Christ as both Creator and Redeemer. How in the world do we come to a point where there are those who we find are, have received Christ and are believing today? How in the world does... Does LifePoint Baptist Church become plausible in the world? The world didn't see Jesus for who He was. But now we have a whole room full of people who have received Him and are believing at this moment. How in the world is the irony of this room possible? How is it that we have those gathered here today who have been given the right to become children of God? It's absolute. How do you get a right? Well, if you ask our modern age, they'll tell you to put a yard sign in front of your house. They'll tell you to go, you know, burn down half a village and throw a fit for your rights. Is that how we receive the right to become children of of God? Somebody might say, well, 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 Jay, look, most of the world couldn't see it. Uh, Most of the world couldn't see that Jesus was the Creator and the Redeemer. But there were these exceptions. There were these really intelligent people, just a few, that showed up there at at the manger scene, the, the wise men. And, 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 and the shepherds and those who, man, just out of their intelligence, they were given the right to become children of God. And others might say, no, no, no it wasn't their intelligence. It, it was that these were really spiritual people, and so they gained the right, and then through, you know, human volition and through human will, that grand free will that's not there. Um, They were granted this right. 
Or, or, or there were those, it wasn't their spirituality, it wasn't their intelligence, it was their righteousness. Well, that defies the entire gospel altogether. So it wasn't our intelligence, it, it, it wasn't our, our spirituality, it wasn't our righteousness, it was none of that. Friends, the only proper answer to how we explain the exception to verses 10 and 11 in verse 12 is found in verse 13. Look with me. Who were born not of, the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The only reason that can explain the exceptions to the unbelief in the world that are setting in this room today is the sole sufficiency of the work and the counsel of the Father before the creation of the world. That is the only right answer. That the second that we move in any other direction, we've lost the gospel. Isaiah again. And excuse me, turn to John chapter 6. Starting in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I came down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. The only way that we come from verses 10 and 11 of not knowing to knowing Receiving and believing is that the Father draws those that He has given to the Son. The only way that we come to the exceptions of our salvation being a reality in verse 12 and have the right to become children of God is because of the Father's sovereign saving power and declaration. Friends, can I I make you a promise that you can cash in in eternity? Come and find me if I'm wrong about this. But there's a lot of people in the church today that will argue, I have the ability in and of myself to make myself a Christian. I am the one who brought myself to Christ. I am the one who decided. Now again, in this language, we're not saying that there's no... There's no action of receiving or believing on our part. We're not saying that. But to assert this heavy-handed, I did this. Can I promise you one thing on the authority of the Word of God? When we stand before His majesty for all of eternity, no one will begin addressing the reality of their salvation with I. Not one. You see, we, 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 we have this problem in evangelicalism. We ask one another, how did, you, how did you come to Christ? And without fail, when we ask that question, here's what happens. How did you come to Christ? Without fail, somebody's going to answer in this way. Well, you see, I. Do you see the error there? Don't. I'm not saying that there wasn't an eye that is, is, is in the recesses subjectively receiving and believing. That's not how you came to Christ. The, the better way to answer the question is, is to answer by starting this way, well, God. And that's what John's doing here. 
It's as if someone asked, well, John, how did you become an apostle? John, how in the world do you have this gospel? John, how in the world did you become from not believing to believing? And he doesn't start with I. He begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, uh, the word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the, in the beginning with God. That's the way that John starts. He doesn't begin with, well, I. He begins with, well, God. And someone may say, yeah, yeah, I understand all that and and point to that of what Christ has done as the secondary thing that we put away while the primary thing are the subjective elements that we really want to know. Like saying, what I'm asking you is when in the chronology of your life were you saved? And I get the question, and it's an okay question. And we are conversionists. We're good Baptists. And we want you to make a profession of faith. If you're here today not believing, our greatest desire is that you turn to Christ in repentance and faith. What we are talking about here is how that happens. How those exceptions become realities. And glorious realities. Because when we're asked... Well, well, when were you saved? I mean, I could tell you about this little lady named, and I think I did last week, uh, named Lorena C., who had just come back from vacation in the early 90s, and she shared the gospel at a vacation Bible school to a twit of an 8-year-old, 7-year-old child who would not sit still, and for the first time that child understood the gospel. I could tell you about the ministry of a little podunk, uh, small rural church in all of its warts and wrinkles, that I will be forever thankful for their faithfulness in being the witness in my life to the glory of the Word of God. I could tell you of those subjective things. In fact, I have a piece of carpet in my office that was mailed to me by a dear saint in that church. Two pieces of carpet, actually. This is kind of weird. I don't hold on to relics, but I received them in the mail, and it was cute. She dumpster dived as they were doing a church renovation to give me a piece of carpet that y'all that stuff had to have come out of the 60s it's got orange and that green color and gold and that's the the carpet in the room the agape room where i received christ i also have the carpet that uh where i where i got married uh in the sanctuary as well i I asked him i thought we i thought y'all got rid of that a couple weeks ago yeah yeah uh well Miss Joyce jumped into the dumpster for you. Humbling to have 70-year-old women jumping in dumpsters. There are those places where we received, where we believed. But beloved, what I want you to see in this text is that we're told so much more. If you come to John and you ask, well, where were you saved? John's not going to take you back to that place anywhere in his, his gospel necessarily. He's going to tell you, well, if you want to know where you were saved, look back to the cross. Because there, Jesus knew all of those for whom He was dying. Your salvation, your your receiving and believing may have happened later on in your life. And glory to God that they did by the work of the Spirit. But your salvation, if you want to know when it happened, it happened there on the cross. It's what we call theologically definite atonement. And I want to read you a definition that maybe will clarify what that is. Definite atonement is simply, I love this definition, y'all. Y'all. Isn't that a great word? I was thinking of of my brother Dallas earlier when he said, he didn't say oil. We send people like that back north, right? He said all. Right? Right? It's the way we pronounce things. So y'all, this great, great definition of definite atonement. The doctrine of definite atonement states that in the death of Jesus Christ, the triune God intended to achieve the redemption of every person given to the Son by the Father in eternity past and to apply the accomplishments of His sacrifice to each of them by the Spirit. The death of Christ was intended to win the salvation of of God's people alone. When you when were you saved? You can answer that succinctly every time at the cross. That is the reality and, and in fact if, if you say well give me a textual basis for that, do you have time? 
I'll take you to one. In, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, and you're, you're free to turn there. If we're in John. John 17, verses 6 through 11. Jesus praying here to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that, at, that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I come to you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world. But they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. You see, John would say, there at the cross, Jesus knew who he was dying for, and it is on that cross that your salvation was accomplished. But John doesn't stop there. He says, if you're asking when you were saved, it happened. It, it, the, the, the process of your redemption there was accomplished by Christ and Christ alone. But if you really want to get down to it and know when you were saved, well, that was before the foundation of the world. Move on further in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 24. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. When were we saved? Well, what we know from Christ's prayer is that if we have received Christ, if we are believing upon Him at this moment, we were not saved 20 years ago. We weren't even saved 2,000 years ago. We were ultimately saved in Christ prior to the foundation of the world by the will of the Father. And that is what John is saying. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but by God's grace and for His glory, but of God. Those three words change everything about our reality. How can we ever get over them? How can we leave this place without rejoicing in the reality that it's not of blood, it's not of human will, it's not of human exertion. It is only by the work of God. Now, some may say that, well, well aren't you distracting if you're talking about salvation, I mean, we're good Baptists. I understand salvation to be that moment of receiving the gospel and receiving Christ by faith. By, by holding on to a theology that says I was saved prior to the, the, the foundation of the world. It was accomplished in the cross. Aren't you somehow robbing the glory of conversion? 
Well, friends, uh, here's my argument. Conversion is something we should all herald and, and be on point about and, and rejoice in. But conversion itself is not what is to be worshipped. God is to be worshipped. And the answer is plainly this. No. Having the right understanding of how you become saved prior to the foundation of the world by the will of God does not distract from the occurrence of conversion. It makes it all the more glorious. Because when someone comes to saving faith, it's not because Jay preached a good sermon. It's not because we did a good job witnessing. It's not because of our effort, although God uses those means. In fact, I think often about the gospel presentation that Lorena C. gave me. I just go, ugh. But I'm thankful she gave her effort in, in declaring what she understood the gospel to be, and God used that. But in that moment... I don't look back and go, praise God that this woman did all of this. I look past her, thankful for her, but see the reality of the miracle of my conversion. The, the joy of the reality that but for God, that would not have happened. Our salvation happened prior to the foundation of the world, was secured at the cross, it was applied in our regeneration, and it was made known in our conversion. And that makes conversion a miracle, something that echoes of eternity, that we can see, that we can rejoice in. When we see people baptized, I promise you, one of the great pervasive problems, when people pump their chest and say, I am a Baptist, I'm me too, brother. But what kind are you? If you're the kind that falls asleep during the baptismal service, I don't want to be that kind. I want to be the kind that they have to duct tape me to the chair every time they take someone to the baptistry because I realize that there are echoes of the glory of God rippling through the waters of that baptistry. What a joy! That, that how does this church come to be? How, now the church is made... Only by the divine work of God, but of God, the church is made. For our, our regeneration brings us ultimately to be believers, and then we are part of the church at the moment that the Spirit births us anew, that we are born again, we are part of the, the church universal. But how does this church become visible? It becomes visible when in response to the regenerating work of God, we receive Christ and believe. We should never get over conversion. But we have to understand what precedes conversion. And John has just leveled the hammer gloriously when he says to all of us here today who rejoice in our conversion, we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I'll be succinct here. What, what he's saying there, not of blood or of the will of the flesh. Now, now there's a lot of ambiguity and, and disagreement here, but I'm going to give you my perception of what this means. What he's saying is, we weren't born through our physical lineage. This is, this is not a birth that Nicodemus is going to get confused about that is the same kind of birth the way that babies are made. And you see, life was associated in this cultural context with, with blood. And this isn't the blood, and I don't mean to be too graphic here, but this isn't the blood of childbirth. This is an understanding that, that, that in the culture they understood life to be contained in the blood. And so it's not through that blood, it, it's not through that that we are born again. That, that's not the, the way that happens. And then he uses this phrase, or of the will of the flesh. Succinctly, I think that means, well, for babies to be made, there has to be a conjugal act that is precipitated by the will of the flesh. Think about that and you'll get that. I'm not going any further. So, so, so we're not born into the kingdom of God through natural means, but of God. And then he, just to clarify, somebody will say, okay, well, not the physical means. John, I don't think, consciously knew it, but 
but God did when he inspired this, that there were going to be some knotheads that would raise up throughout the centuries against the church and try to teach you people that you, through your own exertion, your own will, your own decisions, that your conversion happens. And so John makes it very plain. I don't know how you get past these words, nor of the will of man. It's not your will. We all, everyone in us, in this room, everyone on this planet has permission to know God. God has never kept anyone back from permission to know Him. But permission's not the problem. The problem is our spiritual condition, that we are depraved and that we don't have the ability to spiritually see anything. So that it is only our birth coming through the will of God. The Father's will is then the only sufficient answer to why when the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, that we are of God. That we have received Him and that we are believing in His name can only be attributed to the grace and the kindness of the will of the Father accomplished in the Son and applied by the Spirit. Might we glory in Him for having done this reality in us. Would you pray with me? Father, we come today knowing that we are not exceptional people, but You are exceptional in all that You do. You are Creator, and You are displaying Your redemptive works. There's not a sermon, there's not a movement, There's not an effort of man that will bring about redemption. It is only through the moving of Your Spirit for Your glory. So Father, we pray that when we come into this place and we are asked, when were You saved? That always buzzing in our ears will be, well, we were saved in eternity past by the benevolence of a Father who knew us before the foundation of the world in all of our wretchedness and chose to save us instead of damn us. And that was accomplished on the cross. And here are the particulars of how we received and we believed. Father, keep us believing. If there's one here today that is not believing, would you do the work that only you can do? Father, might we worship you in spirit and in truth and glorify you for